Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, one of the books I've been recommended so many times is How Not to Plan by Les Binet and Sarah Carter. So I thought it was about time I got them on the show to find out all the tips about how not to plan, what marketers should be doing rather than what they shouldn't be doing. Uh, this episode is full of real good tips and tricks from two of the world's best planners who really do know what they're doing. Uh, so you'll enjoy this episode. It's full of great nuggets. Here's my conversation with Sarah and Les. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Hello. And Les, welcome to the show. Hi. I, I was just asking as I was preparing for this, we, we often lovingly refer to you and Peter as the godfathers of effectiveness, but I believe your godfather status actually translates into the real world. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. We are both godfathers to the same little boy. Um, son of a mutual friend of ours uh, that we've both known for very, very long. So we have high hopes for the, <laughs> the future careers. Yeah, I'm not so sure I'm going to be very good at his religious education. <laughs> now, some breaking news, of course, recently is uh, Adam and Eve and John Lewis have passed a company. So first of all, really sad news, but you must look at it with enormous pride because, I mean... John Lewis changed Christmas pretty much, didn't it, single-handedly? And, uh, you know, as you look back, may, maybe tell me, have you got a favourite campaign? I mean, I know it's hard to choose between your children, that sort of thing, but what would be your favourites? I'm going to say, yeah, my favourite is the uh, long wait, which was 2011, I think. So we were kind of two years into the campaign then. Uh, and I think perhaps a lot of people forget that the campaign has evolved from the start. So we had two years where we had sort of vignettes. We still had the sort of famous song and uh, the lovely kind of observed moments. And it was very emotional, but it was vignette based. And this year, 2011 and the long wait was the first year we went to a single narrative structure. And we kind of got a lift off that year. I think all the kind of magic ingredients came into place. The the music, the, the pre-release online, um, the beautifully observed story, the cute kid in the pyjamas. Uh, no gift shown at all. It was actually wrapped up, if you remember. You didn't actually see anything. Um, and it's the one way you expected the little kid to be excited because he was getting a present, but actually it was because he was giving a present. So there's that lovely little kind of rug, rug pull at the end. And, yeah, I mean, I feel that that ad changed the shape of advertising, mm -hmm. actually, not just Christmas, really, because I think from then on... It kind of taught the world about the power of emotion and the effectiveness of emotion as well. well I mean, that's one of the most profound impacts, isn't it, of, of the John Lewis advertising? Because you're not really doing typical product advertising. You're really tapping into emotion, Christmas, nostalgia, so many different things. And it does feel like you've taught the industry a great deal. Um, I mean, Les, what would your, your favourite one be? Um, if you're allowed to say, of course. The long way is, was fabulous and it did change everything i also very fond of monty the penguin um which it's quite hard to decide which of those two is better possibly the long way but actually my favorite is not a christmas ad at all it's always a woman which maybe has been slightly forgotten um which actually was before the long way um so it wasn't a christmas ad i don't, don't know if you remember that ad it features a woman from cradle to grave basically and basically her living her life with John Lewis by her side throughout the whole story. Not quite grave. It did feel like it no, could end well, up with that. It didn't quite go that far, but that, it could have done. That final scene, the way when I, the, that final scene where, if you recall, the woman and her family, she's old, she turns to the camera and she sort of beckons you to follow her. Yeah. Actually, I'm literally getting goose pimples yeah. thinking about this. When I see that, that's about death, yeah. really. Yeah. And it was, I think, the beginning of us beginning to move towards this 
much more emotional sort of storytelling approach to things. It's just that actually Christmas was the place to apply mm. it rather than... And that was yeah. interesting because I hadn't really thought about that, but that was vignettes. Yeah. Well, it was a vignette. That was vignette, but with a kind of... Within a narrative, wasn't exactly. it? So, um, exactly. Yeah. Sarah's talking about vignettes because this is something we have a bit of a bee in our bonnet about, that vignette ads are weak and don't work well and they're a cop-out usually because people don't want to see... You know, that's that thing you usually say about couples jumping off into the into the water, off a jetty, hand in hand, yeah. smiling, you know, all that crap. They're, kind of, they're yeah. kind of what's not to like, aren't they? A little bit of something for everybody, but don't actually tell any story that kind of appeals to anybody. Well, I think you've so. touched that on the head, haven't you? Because it's storytelling is yes. what I yeah. think John Lewis taught us. I mean, my, my favourite is Excise Bledger, which is almost textbook storytelling. You've got the drama, the negative tension, you've got the character, the journey, the resolution yeah. at the end. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, you've really taught... How to, how to tell stories yeah. at Christmas. And the music, of course, was a big part. And I think people forget, don't they? Stories, music, emotion, characters, you know, all these things are quite important, aren't they? And uh, just going back to Always a Woman for a moment, um, other things that were in there, the, the storytelling thread, so, you, so there's someone that you care about. That's true of all of the, all of the, the great ads, is you, there's a central character or characters that you care about and you follow them in the narrative. So that's very, very different from vignette ads. The other thing is music. Um, you know, that Billy Joel track, you know, it's, it's not garnish. It's part of the way it works. But where, where always a woman was different was that it's... The other ads had virtually no product. <laughs> that one was just loaded with practically every product in the store, wasn't yes. it? And so t tell me how you, obviously, you know, you've done some case studies on John, John Lewis looking at the return on investment. How have you evaluated what it did for the John Lewis business? First of all, it's not primarily us that evaluates it. Um, John Lewis have always used econometric modelling as their primary way of measuring the financial payback. And they've done that with independent econometric consultants various ones that they used over the years. That's the central way they measure their sort of ROI. But when we put together our case studies, we look at a whole range of different kinds of evidence, you know, from online responses to store footfall to tracking to everything else. But the, I think the very central core of it is there's a demonstrable, demonstrable <laughs> financial ROI. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really inspiring, isn't it? And it I think it's, it's proved to the industry that actually creating emotion and good stories is good business, isn't it? Creativity can be very good for business as well, which is, I think, I think you've done a huge, you know, contribution to the, the, the whole world, really. The point that I've sort of made recently is quite often you get sniffy comments from people like, you know, yeah, they're nice ads, you know, but do they sell any product? Oh, I don't think so. And if you just go, John Lewis themselves say that, you spend a pound on this stuff and you get 10 pounds of profit, not revenue, but profit back, you know. So with some of them, Monty the Penguin, I think it was 11 pounds per pound spent, you know. That's just, you don't get that from, you know, paid search or direct mail or anything like that. And also stuff. people tend to think it's just Christmas and it's just the big emotional ad, don't they? But, but it's all year round and, yeah. you know, we do other what would be seen as more activation type more classic kind of retail yeah. work as well, much of which is at Christmas is funded by <laughs> the people who, whose brands they are as well, which all helps with the payback too. But it's, um, people tend to forget it's part of a bigger piece. But, but you're right, I think it did for the first time 
help people understand yeah. that emotion sells. Yeah. And, and there's the sort of specificity of a story can have wide appeal, because I think people get a bit muddled up with that, which is why vignette ads are so popular. They think you need to show everybody in there mm. doing all sorts of different things, and that appeals to everybody. But what Hollywood obviously get is that you tell a story of a person and you get the emotion right, that appeals to everybody. So yeah, get, Going back to the vignette ads thing, it's, it's the difference between inspiring an emotion and showing an emotion. And often vignette ads are about showing people, you know, hand in hands, you know, let's show joy, you know. No, you want people to feel joy and that can come from something quite different. I mean, what I love about the, what, the econometrics you've done is you've basically given the rational case for emotion. And, and, and from a you know, former client point of view, the amount of conversations I've had with the board or the finance department about spending money on this very emotive you know, advertising idea, it can often be quite hard to sell in. And I think that's where the power of the work you've done to prove the business case for it is so powerful because... Often, you know, clients like me have had to kind of sell the crazy ideas in, you know, in, into the boardroom. And I think that's where it comes in. But I wanted to ask, ask you a little bit about planners because, um, and uh, I thought I'd tell you the story of where I first came across the long and the short of it. Because I think this sort of illustrates the point quite nicely. And I was working on uh, LucasAid at the time and uh, we had this big idea. And this about five years ago. So probably, you know, you, you know, your book's been out a good five years at this point. And um, we're locked away in a kind of room a bit like this. And, and, and I'm with four of the planners from Grey, our agency at the time. And I remember, the first, it was, as always with planners, it's about 45 minutes before you get to the idea. You know, there's, there's a lot of build-up. Anyway, first slide, long and the short of it, right? And look, with no disrespect, there's almost a slight eye roll going, and as we all know, the long and the short of it, you see. And I'm like, hang on a second. Whoa, 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 reverse up a second. Are you saying there's evidence for how marketers should invest between long-term brand building and short-term? Because if there is, I need to know and go back to my board and argue the case. Because at the moment, you know, I'm on, you know, quarterly earnings targets and stuff yeah. like this. So I just wonder, what are your thoughts on, it's obviously a profound piece of work. How, how obviously, yes, you know. <laughs> But, you know, in the right hands, it really is quite powerful. And, and some of the arguments I'd have with the board about investing in long term, not just in short term, those conversations are happening all the time. So how do we get that message out there? I mean, even, I know, te te is it 10 years? I think around 10 years, 10 years now, isn't it? 10 years in July, I think. Yeah. So I, I guess with well, the first question, how do you reflect on that, that work? And then secondly, how do we get this into the hands of the people that need it as well? Reflecting on the work is fabulous piece of work and you should definitely buy a copy yeah <laughs> yeah still available yeah i think we hit on something i think there's some there's a there's an idea in there and i think it has some value actually i mean i suppose it really it's still a hypothesis you know this idea that there are quite distinct short and long-term effects but it seems to be still gaining traction after 10 years and uh, and i think it is helpful for clients to have more valiant balanced view of how to plan their activity and how it all works. So I think, you know, there's legs in it. Very much a where in versus where out, I think, on this. Yeah, yeah. I think so. It's, it's, <laughs> there's a bit of a theme there, generally, yeah, it's, isn't there? It's sort of... Dare I say. And it's Mr really... Ritson helped a lot as well. I mean, he's done a great job in kind of banging yeah. the drum for it, hasn't he? he and has, kind of yeah. popularising it, if you like, and endorsing it. It's funny, actually. So when, when we originally wrote the thing, Peter and I were very adamant that what we wanted to write was a book. And we wanted a book and we wanted it to be something that would be still selling in 10 years' time. And I think it's fair to say that the IPA were not that interested in that. They, in fact, if you notice, if you go back to the original stuff, they never refer to it as a book. They refer to, re refer to it as our new report, as in a piece of news yes. which will be oh, out, 
in, you know, but we definitely had the view that we wanted to write something that was going to last. And we, we almost had to kind of fight them about that. So even down to the, the format of the publishing. So that is clearly a book. How Not to Plan is clearly a book. Look at the, look at the thing. Uh, the format for, for um, The Long and the Short of it is... So I've had people refer to it annoyingly as a booklet <laughs> you know, or, or your pamphlet or whatever, you know. Yeah, if you really want to fuck me off, then that's a good way to do it. <laughs> but um, but we, I think we... And, and it's, in a sense, it's, it was part of a long-running campaign which we're still going on. So, so a lot of the ideas began in, in the first snappily titled book, Marketing in the Era of Accountability, which I still can't say properly. So I, I think, in a, in a sense, we've, we've lived our own principles of, of long-term, not exactly brand build, but long-term sort of campaign to change people's Pro- lives. Probably the power of a key visual as well, thinking about it, because you got the kind yeah. of, the, you know, that, that one chart that the everybody zigzag. gets, the zigzag or whatever people I think call you do it, need that, a that, hero that. slide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. as much as it kind of must pain you to go, well, you could, you could read the rest of the book, couldn't yeah. you? But you sort of need one thing that everyone yeah. locks you know, in there, on. There was actually a real, there was a definite moment. There was a, an aha moment there. So those ideas, the ideas behind that, go back to about 1995, actually, Frizzell Insurance, when I worked doing econometrics on, on this insurance brand where it was both brand building and direct response and using econometrics to tease out the effects and just having this moment thinking, God, there's two effects with different decay rates. And I've been doing versions of that graph, which looks slightly different for some years. I did a version of the graph for the book and Peter said, no, no, it's, it's still not clear. And then I did the zigzag version. And I, sent, I emailed that one across to him and he went, he went that's it, that's it, that's the key visual. And at the time it was kind of like, um, you know, like you come up with something and you go, well, it's kind of obvious though, isn't it? You know, but it obviously isn't. It's so. a kind of system one visual, isn't it, yeah. for a system yeah. two bit of thinking. Yeah. So yeah. it's communication, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. It's like one of those moments when you create something which has got a life of its own, mm. you know. Mm. Sometimes too much almost, you know, because it... I've had people who seem to think, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's the whole of everything Les and Peter have ever done. You know, it's yeah. like either that or the 60-40 rule. Well, that's hotly debated, isn't it? I mean, is it 70-30? Is it sometimes 65-40, you know, 35 and all this sort of thing? But um, um, w- one of the hot topics as well is uh, Ritson's bothism as well. I mean, to, to what extent do long and the short have to be separated? Is there ever a scenario where you can do both? Okay, well, I think Ritson, when he talks about bothism, he's not talking about doing both at the same time. That's not what he's saying at all. Um, what he's saying is that you need to do both. And he's, saying, he's making the point that, that it's the long and the short of it. And he says in that, in that title, the most important word is and, which is a nice way of putting it. Um, but he's not saying that you do it both at the same time. That's absolutely not what he's saying. In fact, he, one of his recent posts was precisely about why that was wrong. And that was the brown paint one, wasn't it? That's yeah, the one. That's yeah, it, yeah. yeah. So the point is that and this is hard to get across to people because it's sort of, it's not black and white. Everything does a bit of both. A brand TV ad will have a slight activation effect for some people. A piece of crappy direct mail will have a brand building effect for some people. But the point is that the mix is different for the different activities. And trying to do both equally all the time in the same piece of communication is not a good mix because you've got conflicting needs. You know, brand needs to be broad reach. Activation needs to be tightly targeted. Brand needs to be emotional. 
activation needs to be rational, brand needs to be memorable, activation needs to be interactive, if you like. And you, you can't do all those things well at once. So yes, you need both, but doing both at the same time is usually inefficient, unless you've just got a tiny budget and that's all you can do. Yeah, makes complete sense. Um, you mentioned how not to plan a course, which yes. is also a really key to come I, I on noticed to. we haven't talked about it so much no, yet. I, well, I, I really enjoyed it. And as I said, um, you know, uh, when I asked uh, listeners what book do they recommend, you know, th- this came very high. So, Sarah, I'd love to ask you about this. Let's start with what's the one topic that you think marketers consistently misunderstand that you'd like to, you know, if you could change one thing. Well, I think it would be around the area of people's indifference largely to what we do. Um, I think that's the thing that it's just so easy to forget in the day-to-day when you're absorbed in your product and your brand and you know so much about it. Um, I mean, I don't have half as much circulating in social media as as Les, but one thing that does seem to periodically go around is that quote of mine that marketers should all have a post-it note above their desk saying, you know, they don't give a shit about any of this and indifference is the start point. I mean, it shouldn't need saying, but it seems like it does and people seem to like to be reminded of that because it's it's just such a funny old job we have, isn't it? If you think about it compared with sort of a plumber or a hairdresser or a dentist, you're sort of equally invested in and interested in the outcome. But ours has just got this profound imbalance in it. The trouble is if you get that start point wrong and you don't start from indifference, then everything else goes wrong. You kind of junk things too quickly. You don't understand why you need to be consistent. You don't entertain for commercial gain, as you say. You think, why do I need a furry animal in this? You talk about landing messages and reasons to believe and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of think if you can get that start point right, then everything flows from that. But it's just so easy to forget that. Yeah, so that would be what I would remind people. And that's a kind of theme that just kept coming back and back, isn't it? Really, through most of what's in there it, it, it's it's really about about that i guess what ritson would call looking at market orientation he calls it yes, doesn't he looking yes, through yes. the other end of the telescope and and goodness it's just so difficult to do and it's so easy to kind of get that wrong so yeah that's what one I. one thing I, I loved about it was the kind of contrarian nature of it because there's quite a few myths busted in this right isn't there you, you've definitely taken a you know a lot of the popular things we believe about marketing and actually demonstrated why they're kind of wrong sort of thing um, and the other thing i enjoyed as well which was a pleasant surprise again putting my client hat on is you don't talk about communication till a good halfway through the book you know and um, was that an intentional thing to kind of you know um make sure that, you know, when you're planning, you, you've got to consider all the, all the P's, right? You can't just go, every answer ends in one of the P's yeah. kind of thing. Was that a conscious thing about writing the book? or was just... Well, we didn't consciously set out to write a book. I no. suppose we should say that to start with. I mean, this, this started life as a, a column called Mythbuster in AdMap, yeah. where we were commissioned, I think, to do kind of six or seven or something. <laughs> and, and we were going to take some kind of myths that used to annoy us every month and kind of just rant away at it really and and then it, we kind of did it for six years and then yeah. we thought actually not many people have read these in Avmat. maybe we can put them together into something bigger and then we kind of embellished it with to-do lists and what to remembers and all that stuff so we didn't set out to write it it's, it's so, worth remembering that it that that how it started do you remember the before Avmat. Uh, we pitched it to no, to, the to another um mm. it was marketing week oh, i don't know <laughs> Uh, I'm going to say this. Go on, <laughs> so we pitched it to, I think, was it Marketing Week? Mm, I can't remember. Marketing it might be marketing. How much band two, by the way, could still yeah, be an no, option. No, that, would be, that could be an option. We pitched it to, I think it was Marketing Week, mm. as a series of, of, of columns about busting marketing myths. So that's where it started in, in this contrarian thing. Uh, and as you say, I think we had like about six or something. That, and Marketing Week saw no interest or value in it whatsoever. 
<laughs> Are you listening, Russell? <laughs> yeah. It was before his time. Okay. The editor at the time was uh, actually quite cross with us for wasting his time. <laughs> but to answer your question, so I suppose that that focus on the context of communication, yeah. not just communication, just came out naturally from what we every month we'd have a little chat about mm. what we you know what had annoyed us that month basically, and uh, so it kind of fell out naturally from that. But you you can't really just talk about communication without talking about that context, no. can you? If there's a new cheesy yeah. product that you know some brand wants to launch, and you know five years ago they tried it and it failed, then and if they're going to support that, then they're going to neglect the core where you know you get the maximum payback if you're painting on a bigger canvas or whatever, or you need to be quick to mind, but you haven't got any brand in the stores, so distribution <laughs> isn't, you know, you, you can't really separate them. But this kind of brings us, I think one of our challenges actually, from a planning point of view, is very often the planners are involved once a communication brief has been written, but really you need to be involved when the brand strategy is being written up front, you know, further yeah. upstream. Do you, do, you, do you guys have much involvement in that thing? Because certainly when I've had the greatest success is when the planning team are, are literally in the brand planning meetings where we're going, you know, here, here's the brand problem, here's what we need to go for. Yeah. Much more powerful, isn't it, when you can get involved? That's, That's the classic BMP way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, we were set up at the end of the 60s, same sort of time when JWT launched planning, and that was very much the the idea that we'd have a lot of planners in our department, enough to have a proper kind of seat at the table, yeah. arm in arm with the account. So we're not kind of stuck in some back room being kind of dusted off for a... Um, a quick, yeah, a a quick kind of like, place. and then off you go, and we'll get on with the rest of it. So we've we've always very much been part of the process, and yeah, and as you're right, defining the problem is one of the biggest parts of our role, really, not just kind of cranking out the ads further down. It's probably worth reminding your younger viewers or listeners um, that you see people will think of us as Adam and Eve, or they'll maybe think of us as DDB. We're not. We're BMP. We were both part of the Bozema P. Simi Pollitt way of advertising. So Stanley Pollitt, the P of BMP, along with Stephen King, invented planning. And his view was always, I think, that it was firmly linking business objectives to marketing objectives through the four P's and down into communication right the way through the whole thing. Peter Field was also BMP. You know, we are, you know, the three of us are disciples of Stanley Pollitt, basically. And that very, very thorough marketing approach to planning, rather than some of the other pointy hat with moon and stars, mystical planning nonsense bollocks that, that uh, has overtaken the world since then. And I started off in marketing as well, so I yeah. guess I come from that background. So I, for me, it's always been part of that wider context, that not really just... Actually, a, yeah. I think it does, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it happened quite a lot. We had, used to have... We used to recruit a lot of planners from marketing. It happens a bit less probably nowadays, but... That would be an interesting thing. You don't get much switch between the sides, I mean, you know what I mean? But you don't get 10 people. I mean, actually, for me, actually, the first time I've ever done an agency role in the last three years. Fascinating, really. I, I really enjoy it because you can kind of see how this stuff gets applied. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't uh, often happen does yeah, it, that way either. Yeah, it's so powerful, isn't it? Because there's so much rich intelligence out there and, yeah. you know, wisdom that can that any marketer – in fact, this is why I set the podcast up, actually, is just to connect marketers – with you know with great planning and great thinking that's out there because yeah. it's, it's all available now i'd love to go through all 66 now we haven't got time for that so i've picked out 10 and i thought i would um you know pitch one each as we go just for fun here to see so i thought i'd start with how not to get caught short right so see what i did there um obviously in honor of the 10 years and all that sort of thing um but a little pivot here because um les i noticed you did some interesting work with meta about yeah. the 
uh, you know, even the benefit, the long-term benefit of what might be perceived as short-term. Can you explain a little bit more about, because you end up with a 60-40 again. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I didn't work with them. Um, all I've done is I, I've done a couple of speeches with them and, and I've sort of publicised what they've done because I liked what they've done. So they've commissioned a whole load of econometric models from independent econometrics consultancies to try and measure the short and the long-term effects of different media. And they, their overall conclusion, and you can see why I might like this, was that about 60% of the payback from advertising comes from the long-term and only about 40% from the short-term. And that even for things like, you know, online video or social media, you know, a big chunk of the payback comes from this long-term effect that people have often missed. You know, they're obviously thinking along the same lines as Peter and I. Again, it's, it's just, it feels like there's a sort of drip drip of bits of evidence from different bits of the industry, which is corroborating some of the things we say. I mean, it's really, again, it's really profound because it just changes how you might evaluate a campaign. Yes. So if you're looking through a short lens, you're going to draw one conclusion, look at, open the, you know, filter a bit, look yeah. over a longer period of time, you might draw another conclusion. So it's really good. Then, uh, so number two, uh, how not to be consistent. So Sarah, I thought I'd ask you about this one. So uh, one thing that marketers love is change. Now it drives me insane, you know, and again, I've got to blame myself here, you know, kind of being client side, but you have your annual planning reviews, rebrief the agency every year. It, it, so much good work goes to waste, doesn't it? I mean, what's going on here? Yeah, well, we wrote about that a lot in here, didn't we? Because I think, you know, one of the great skills of marketers is knowing what to change and what not and when to change and when not and and that is hard but I think there has just been a default to change a far too big a, a default of junking everything that goes I mean it's, I always say it's quite ironic when more and more companies are interested in sustainability that they never yes. apply that to the ads it's just <laughs> yeah. like rip it up chuck it out let's do yeah. another one this year and yeah and there's a number of reasons I think there's the myth of wear out which we wrote about quite early on didn't we and I think you know with all the studies that we've seen and there've been some big ones there just is no evidence for that at all and even uh, a certain tracking company who'd have thought would be rather invested in encouraging people to junk everything and start start again and start testing have uh, have acknowledged that there isn't such a thing either and in fact wear in is much bigger issues we've talked yeah. about with with John Lewis and, and your Kevin the Carrot and, and all that kind of stuff. So most um, ads don't get a chance to wear in because they're all junked too soon. So that, that kind of myth of wear out is one of them. People like making new shiny things, as you say. You don't get any marketing week headlines by, um, you know. Old campaign runs again. Keeps running his old <laughs> yeah. campaign for 10 years. Well done, John. Ferrero Rocher back on air again. <laughs> You're not going to get any headlines from that. So, uh, and then I think, and, and I think this is changing now, there's been a kind of misunderstanding or lack of knowledge of the importance of, you know, distinctive assets and fluency and all that stuff that you talk about. And people, mm. um, even, you know, really big respected clients have knowledge that they've been far too playing fast and loose with these sorts of things. And they now realize that continuity is important. And it all comes back to that indifference point earlier as well. People aren't trying to work out who's, whose ad this is for, and they're just not going to do that. So... Um, but I think that's changing. It feels like campaigns might be coming back again because at one stage when we wrote the book, I think we only could think of Walkers and Felix. There just weren't any other long-running campaigns. It all gone. I am wondering strangely whether the current challenges we're facing economically are actually forcing a little bit of this. I mean, we just finished a huge study for a very big global brand. Can't see who they are. But 
I, the vast majority we tested a significant number of that read, sorry, retested a number of their ads over the last four years. And every single one except the very specific time-limited ones linked to sponsorship yes. of big global sporting events, right, yeah. should we say. Yeah. Everything else yeah. wore in. Yeah. And we even looked at length of time. We looked at spend. We looked at every variable to try and cut it in a way that to disprove it. And we found actually... In most cases, now the, the the impact was from small to reasonable, yeah. but in almost every case, where in existed yeah. rather than yeah. where out. So the large research company that Sarah's not willing to name, which I will if you like, um, well, it's Miller Brown because they published it. So their own published work said where out is very rare, except for occasions when it's an announcement type ad, yes. you know, which obviously you know yeah. that's that's different. Um, Having said that, actually, we have a recent example of the Schmackos thing in Australia where there was a much-loved campaign in Australia for dog treats, which it looked like it was gradually becoming less effective over time because it had been running for a very long time and the sort of animation techniques that they'd used were beginning to look, you know, it was just like the film was looking old and crappy, you know. And rather than completely junking it, what they did was they effectively refresh the campaign using more modern yeah. animation techniques and yeah. boom, it worked mm -hmm. again. So it was a bit, you know, the thing just looked dusty, yeah. I think. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because I've often thought that design companies get this far more than agencies. If you go down mm. to the Museum of yeah. Brands and Packaging down the road, you've yes. got these wonderful yeah. displays of a, a hundred years of personal packaging or whatever, and mm. you can't see it's the incremental change. It's very interesting, You have to look at the beginning yeah. of the end to yeah. see the change. Yeah. All the yeah. bits in the middle are quite... But they kind of yeah, get yeah, it, and then, yeah. it, yeah, you know, the, the chopper and changes of the ad world, it's the same principle. You need to know mm. what to change yeah. and what to freshen up. And it's often bad research, I think, behind this wear out myth as well if you ask people are you getting fed up with seeing it that's very different from measuring the sales effect mm. and finding it actually still works and it's again you're you're talking to people in a kind of system two mindset right. if you're asking that and that could be a frequency issue not anything inherently wrong with the ad as well so and the you know the counter to that design thing is that famous tropicana example mm. where they they radically redesigned the pack and sales fell yes. off a cliff yeah. um uh, you know, it, it, I, th I think, as you say, when they refresh a logo or whatever, it's often because something like the font's beginning to look old-fashioned or something like that, and it's just a little tweak. That's the kind of thing that, you know, I think about all of a sudden I'm thinking of, um, I can't remember, was it Bisto or Oxo or both, uh, where the family sort of un underwent, or indeed our PG Tips things, where the basic idea was the same, but we, you know, the P PG Tips chimps, the family sort of evolved with culture, didn't they? And then changed into monkey. Yeah. It wasn't we, a chimp. But it was, yeah, that is a really good point, actually, isn't mm. it? Because it, it doesn't mean you don't change. It means, but you just keep the familiar assets and yeah. the idea and, and the, you, know, the, you know, all those things together. You know, so you can evolve it carefully yeah can be very very successful and your work on fluent devices has been brilliant I mean, that's another thing oh, where i think yeah. 10 years ago people didn't understand that and it's yeah. now yeah, that has yeah. now got into the kind of vernacular and people do understand if that if i more. had to pick one thing from my colleague orlando i have to say the fluent devices yeah. thing is really neat yeah. isn't it because it, it's a bit surprising isn't it because you go why have a chimpanzee in your ad or you know what's a dancing gorilla doing or whatever or meerkats or you know so many cases aren't there and people must go you're crazy imagine the kind client meetings go so we open on this scene and we've got this Russian accent meerkat you know what on earth's going on so, at one time we used to have 
uh, Dulux here in the agency. Mm. We didn't create the Dulux store. No, I think he existed before we, yeah. we worked on it. But yeah. Actually, two weeks ago, I was, I was in uh, Rotterdam talking to some people who work for the company that owns Dulux, which is um, Nobel, not ICI. Anymore. But anyway, they were talking about how outside the UK, the idea of the Dulux dog in the ads is just utterly baffling. You know, they, they go... But they go, why would you do that? You can't put the dog into, a, into an ad for paint, you know. And they can't quite work out why it is that it still works over here. Yeah. Isn't there, there's a quote in the book about, I'm not having a rodent selling my product or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Favourite quote. It was, from, it, was, it, was a, it was from the Quaker Oats client when yeah. we were developing... Um, ads for bars. Harvest Chewy Bars, which were kind of nutty bars, and the ad was some sort of squirrels trying to nick it off someone who's eating it on a bench or something. Yes, and he said, I will not have my company's fine products endorsed by a rodent. I love that. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I've come across that with other kind when you, we, you know, a certain financial brand, we, <laughs> we proposed some sort of primate, and a similar sort of thing. I will not stand up at my company's sales <laughs> conference with a primate endorsing my credit card. Um, <laughs> But it comes back to indifference yeah. again. And, yeah. and as you yeah. said, you need to entertain for commercial gain and all that kind of stuff. Just, just you... get over yourself. Mm. You know? I mean, mm. well, yeah. um, clients and, and plenty of people in agencies take advertising and marketing and all this stuff far too seriously. Uh, and they think it's more important than it is. And they take it seriously as well. One of my favourite quotes is from Deborah Mills, who um, uh, used to work here who apparently in a, a meeting was it was with Jacobs or someone like that. Some long, complicated meeting about discussion of club biscuits, I think it was. And she just finally snapped and went, oh, for God's sake, it's only a bloody biscuit. And I, I always think that that should be over the door of the agency, you know, like sort of in stone. You know? I think I, I spent 13 years, I think it was, at, at Britvic, and we just, we just had, the, we had the equivalent of that, which is it's only fizzy pop. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you, you had to kind of call that in a meeting at some yeah, point. Yeah. Hang on a second. It's only fizzy pop. Nigel Beard, it's only advertising nobody died. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we talk a lot about animals as well, don't we? Yeah. And we had that little section on the power of fur, which we really, I mean, we thought we'd do a whole chapter on that. But the great John Webster, who, as you know, used lots of furry animals, and Cresta Bear and Hoffmeister and Honey Monsters and all that. He, he used to say that it's not important that campaign has legs, but that they're four of them and they're kind of hairy, um, which is probably right. Um, and again, if, you know, with a rational head, head on, you, you, people can't see, you know, what's in, there was a lovely quote with John Webster, he did the Cresta Bear, and this is a long time ago, but he... Um, presented it to some rather serious American client. He said, you know, but why is there a polar bear in it? And he just said, well, why not? And, and that's kind of it, really. There yeah. doesn't have to be a kind of rational reason. Animals uh, uh, are quite uh, good at selling things, well, as you've shown as well, that yeah. animals and babies. Are... And I think, you know, we always hypothesise, don't we, that it's one of the things it does is it sort of diffuses the rational mind. You know, you, it takes you into another space where you're, it gets your guard down. And I think you see this in another way when in the last couple of years with, with people having, you know, Teams meetings and Zoom calls from home, you know, when you're having a very serious meeting about, you know, quarterly cash flow and blah, 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 and then the dog bounds in or the cat go, goes in front of the camera or a little kid comes up and starts wanting, you know, to play with the toy. And all of a sudden, people switch mode and start to be human beings. Yeah, yeah. I reckon meetings would all be more productive if you had some kids and animals in yeah, I think that's exactly right. I remember it wasn't you, and a research company used to correct um, 
for, uh, for, for, for the sales effect of animals, if you had an animal in it. Because it oh, well, gave correct you, up or down? Yeah, you know, down, because down. it gave you an unfair advantage oh. if you had it. You think, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> well, look, this is a really geeky point. I just quick, make a quick geeky point. So, um, Orlando did this amazing correlation between different features in advertising and their level of attention, and he worked with T-Vision on this. And the number one thing that captures the most attention and creates the most emotion was animals, yeah. right? Yeah. Totally, you know, totally backing up what we just said. It's amazing. I mean, it's very forensically done, but it's very, very interesting. And, 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 and incredibly valuable properties for clients. Again, as you know, Webster used to say that, you know, you've got them forever, they don't cost you anything, and they're not going to molest children or anything either. You're not going to get into trouble with it. Yes, you have to pay use. But they're still using the honey monster, I think, aren't they? 30 years on or something. Be, yeah. Felix the cat, 30 years on, that's still um, there. Another one, the same research company uh, that you're not willing to name, um, I think, didn't they used to correct down for music as well? So that, because, um, you know, a, a good way to get through pre-testing was to put a banging track on it. So they go, well, that's an unfair advantage, so we'll dial down for that. But that's missing that's, the point. That's that, the, that's, that music it works for a reason. really <laughs> does work. You well, know. I mean, it's fair enough if it's a track you're not going to use. Gonna use. I get yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. if you Which are, you then, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, moving on maybe to, actually, no, no let's, let's stick with the nonsensical. So how not to make sense, Sarah? I thought that this, um, the customer's not nearly as rational as we think they are. I guess that's probably the summation of what we've just been saying, isn't it? Is that, you know, we, we, we take ourselves too serious and we probably assume a bit too much rationality with our customer. Absolutely, yeah. Things don't need, I think it was a Paul Smith quote we used in the book, wasn't it, that um, don't make sense. And it, it, well, you've mentioned Russian meerkats. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, why? Why Russian? Why, why Russian acts? What's that got to do with anything? But it's that kind of why not crest a bear thought, really. And it just, you yeah, know, don't, comes back to indifference again you want to entertain people and uh, a lot of the stuff that's most entertaining doesn't make rational sense you know that plug boy thing in the Sainsbury's ad that the one's a little scene there's often a little thing like that that never plans often accidents actually I, I don't know that one. Oh, in the Sainsbury's ad, there was that the great little boy who kind of dressed as a plug, wasn't he, in the nativity oh, scene, so and just kind of ran and yeah. jumped, and everyone was sort of it sharing just plug boy out. means. It, and it, it, because it's so non-nativity, you know what I mean? It's, everyone's got the traditional nativity, and he's just this big plug. Yeah. And he, doesn't he run and jump? He jumps, against, and, he, and he's, got he's Velcroed on it or something, isn't he? And he gets stuck to the wall like yeah. this at the end of yeah. it. It's just... It's those details, yeah. often, isn't it? I mean, if you research that on you know, an animatic, it'd be very easy oh, to grind that out. And you think, what on earth that got to do? And then yeah. get rid of that. Yeah, we talk about the round bags, don't we, in the in the book, which I worked on PG Tips at the time when we had square bags and we got wind that the Tetley were coming out in round bags. And you think, what's the sense in that? It'll still be the same tea, still taste the same, but they took over brand leadership. People quite like round bags. They feel mm. kind of cosier and kind of tea-like and didn't make any sense at all but it worked so yeah don't iron out all the little idiosyncrasies and they often come about from accidents i think the julep's dog was an accident i think that wandered onto the set or something yeah i think it wandered onto the set yeah Um, that or that's the story about the andrex puppy (laughs) one of those two but i think the reason that the accidents were is because then they're not logical and so they kind of you you know you're forced to break out of what you would Mm. in a logical way think is not right but if some accident like the smashed martians i know this is an old ad but still one of the britain's favorite ads that they fell over at the end so that when the martians laughing and everyone thought that was intentional that they fell over laughing but actually the models fell over but it just looked really oh, funny and, and again you'd never plan for that but it's these little things that go wrong that often um, are the bits that people remember really easy to iron out but they're the bits that work i think i think more generally 
people are not that rational. You know, it, more and more as I go on through life, I think the rational mind is important, but actually it's very little of what people do. There's a famous, I, I, I won't get this right, isn't the famous quote about people don't say what they think or do what they say, mm. you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's uh, very, very think trouble. how they feel, say what they think or do what they say. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a very good Ogilvy. Ogilvy. But no, it is. Go. It's yeah, absolutely it's, right. It's, so it's, you it's need right to look at what people do rather than what they mm. say. Hence the power of the John Lewis measure at the end of what's actually working econometrically and don't yeah. fiddle around and doing concept testing and all that kind of validated storyboard. One of the things I was thinking about recently was the fact that very often, if you look at, Different cultures or different times through history, you see people doing the same things with the same feelings, but different reasons. And it's like, you know, what well, it feels to me here that, that the behavior is driven by the emotions or is bound up with the emotions in some sort of double causality. And then the reasons are the post rationalization, which varies from place to place and time to time, but the same old thing, you know. Yeah. So quite a lot of our sense of morality and so forth in contemporary society is bound up with 2,000 years of Christianity. Mm. We've just taken the same feelings and then put new ration, rationalizations on them. We're, yeah, yeah, forever post-rationalizing the same emotion, yeah. really, aren't we? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, moving through the P's a little bit then. Um, so Les, you're famously notorious about, you know, your dislike of the price promotion. Okay. So I thought I'd ask you about this, you know, how, how not to change your price. So why are you so um, tough on price promotions because, again, client side, everyone loves a price promotion. Two things. One was years of doing econometric modelling. Maybe not everybody who, who thinks about econometric modelling or market mix modelling will understand that in order to do it properly, you've got to measure price effects. Otherwise, you, you know, the, the models are wrong. Um, and when I first started doing econometric modelling in a high inflation world, clients would ask us to measure the effects of advertising. But the, probably the most valuable thing that we got out of the models was measuring the price effects and the effects of promotions and the price elasticity. Because that allows you to fine-tune your pricing and make loads more money really easily. I think the focus moved away from that as we moved into a low-inflation world and people stopped caring about price. It's just prices mm. suddenly becomes a, a lever that's mm. sort of not being used anymore. Mm. Anyway, years of doing that, and I just kept coming back the same results. These price promotions are not profitable. These price promotions are not profitable. This is losing you a lot of money. And then I started researching the academic literature on that. And there is a whole raft of stuff in the academic literature that says the same thing. The problems being that when you do a price promotion, you get a big surge of volume and it looks really good. But actually, a lot of the time, that volume is not incremental. You're either bringing forward demand or you're diverting demand from elsewhere. So you're selling much less extra volume than you appear to be at a lower price with a lower margin. And very often that means that you actually lose money. Um, so in fact, I, I wanted to publish that. I have some stuff on that, which I still haven't published now. I wanted to publish that back in 2006. And I've been banging on about it for years, but it's kind of, I suppose it's, um, it's gone quiet, but now inflation is rising again. The reason I'm talking about it a lot now is that if, if promoting doesn't make sense in normal times, it really doesn't make any sense in a world where costs are rising and margins are under pressure. But many clients just don't seem to see it. 
it's a, a rather you know I also said similar things about attribution is you can see what looks like a really big effect but it's illusory you know it's not actually incremental business it's probably come out support us earlier isn't it is, is the time frame at which we look at things yeah. completely changes yeah. our conclusion doesn't yeah. it because that would be a classic one so an interesting thing is that when we first started in the business it was not so obvious that price promotions were a great thing to do because that was in the days when you Sales data was typically bi-monthly. You remember that? Bi-monthly Nielsen. And if you're really lucky, you've got monthly Nielsen. And when you look at the bi-monthly figures, you can't see any effect. Yeah, you can't see it. You know, you do a promotion as well. That didn't have any effect. The minute they got EPOS data and got down to sort of weekly and daily sales data, they were going, wow, the effects of price promotions are much bigger than we thought they were. No, they just appear to be. And I think that, EPOS technology was the reason that there was this huge surge in moving money from comms to trade spend. Yes. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. Because if I look over my career, um, I've basically been fighting this rearguard action, basically, to defend kind of comms spend or, or brand spend, you know. And it's almost like this drug, particularly in a PLC, where you've got to deliver quarterly results. You're looking to squeeze your promotions in to max, you know, max that particular quarter out. It really drives the wrong behaviour. Yeah. It, and it's just like a drug in that, you know, you, get, is, you yeah. get a temporary high. This is, this is hypocrisy <laughs> because you go, well, the, the retailer says, well, last year you did 16 price promotions, something like that. And then they go, well, this year you're going to do 18. You know, so you just get on this site and eventually you run out because there aren't enough weeks in the calendar. And then what do you do sort of thing? And this is, by the way, circling back to the original long and the short of it conversation. That's what I found so profound about the book is because you could then demonstrate why if you don't change that dynamic between the price promotion drug and your investment in comms, you're going to end up getting to a plateau yeah. you can't get. It, 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 I think there's a deep analogy with that and, and something like heroin, you know, yeah. uh, which are, yeah. actually heroin is much maligned. <laughs> but, um, you know, you get a temporary high. Uh, and then the low is really horrible, and you have to, to to overcome the low. You need another sh hit, and so you get these spikes. But the the, the long term trajectory is down. You keep getting worse and worse and worse. For many years, I, I within, for example, the IPA, I used to sort of say the advertising industry used to get very worried before digital comms about direct marketing. You know, this direct marketing is stealing our lunch, and I was going. No, it's not. It's trade spend. Trade spend dwarfs the comms budget and it's getting bigger and bigger. And that's, that's the enemy. Do you know the thing that annoys me about trade spend, it drives me mad, is, 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 how, is the P&L. Because it's a variable cost, right? You're spending, in the case of company I was working for, tens of millions, right? But because it's a variable spend, no one really saw it. Whereas the fixed spend of advertising, which yeah. is lower down the P&L, stands out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And when times are tough, you go, well, we better cut John's advertising budget, haven't we? And I'm going, what about the 50 million over there? And there's an analogy with what's happened with, you know, online advertising in that I believe that EPOS data meant that you could suddenly see an immediate short-term payback from from trade spend that you couldn't see in the 1970s, let's say. And so money was siphoned from comms into trade spend. And then with things like digital attribution, you know, clicks, you could suddenly see a very immediate short-term gain from doing short-term online activity. And that siphoned money away from brand building. So, you know, the comms pot had got smaller and then suddenly the proportion of it that was spent on brand building got smaller. And it's the same, same, 
Same mechanic. Well, then the, 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 the fundamental thing is measurement. It's, it's having a dial which seems to tell you something, gives, gives the marketer immediate feedback that they've done something right. They respond to that. Um, so uh, it's, it's a funny old thing because it's really like the more, the more, the better, the more detailed measurement systems have got, the worse marketing's got, I yeah. think, uh, yeah. because it all pushes you in the direction of the short term. It does. That's very profound. Um, I mean, I, I'm the proud owner of one FE because, um, yeah, <laughs> funny actually that I, I know, I know obviously, you know, you know, agencies proud, you know, you know, number of effies and lines as you walk in reception almost get knocked out on you. But, um, you know, and, and I think clients do that a lot less. But I remember the one case study that I, that I got the effie for a few years ago on the brand I was working on was, was almost a perfect example of this because in this particular example, we actually reduced trade spend from 70% of volume to 50% of volume. So 50% on promotion versus 70% before. Distribution stayed the same and we launched a new campaine. Which uh, very proud of it is one of the one, beautiful ones where the insight was great, the execution was you know really followed through absolutely nicely. Sales went up forty eight percent. I was telling you this one before we before we chatted, and uh, it got a bronze effie. And I went and I went up and complained to the jury afterwards. I'm like, where was my gold? They said, John, your sales didn't go up enough. And I'm like, what do you mean forty eight percent? And I, it was, the thing, the reason I felt frustrated was I I felt like I had to explain the context of the other P's, and I said, you've got to understand that you know advertising was in isolation doing all the heavy lifting here in this particular case because we reduced all the other yeah. P's. You know, well, well, the place was the same, the distribution was the same. You know, I, 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 I've never forgotten that. Uh, <laughs> like, I've got a case study here right, that shows it. You know rightly I mean? crossed. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that just tells you something about the F's, doesn't it? We better move on. So, um, um, Sarah, how um, how not to be different? This this was a, this is a lovely one, isn't it? That the, the perennial debate between difference and differentiation, of course. Now, every marketer's grown up with a point of difference, right? Engineer as many points of difference into my products as possible. But it turns out that. Uh, that distinctiveness might just uh, have the edge over difference. Yeah, and this all comes down to whether you say something differently or you say something different, doesn't it? And I think, yeah, there's a lot of learning now to say that actually saying something differently is is a perfectly good strategy and actually often a better one because marketers and ad agencies traditionally tied themselves up in knots, sort of dancing on pins, trying to find something, anything you could say that was different and ownable from your competitors and usually that's either so small it's kind of inconsequential and no one really cares or it's if it's that if it really is something that big then it's just going to get copied anyway so it's a perfectly good and effective strategy to take a category generic and talk about it in a distinctive way and there's loads of examples of um, brands that do that very well I mean Specsavers is just saying you you see better when you've got glasses on really isn't it or you know uh, yeah. Old Spice, you, know, you smell nice when you use this or walkers, it's irresistible. I mean, you couldn't get more generic than that, but it doesn't matter. It's just as long as you do it in a distinctive way, that's the important bit. So it's another one where getting the, the end of the telescope right is what's important, yeah. really, that mm. people have you know, competing brands that they're perfectly happy to switch between. They don't really think there's much difference between them. So these little fine benefits that we kind of sweat on concept boards and things that just people don't really care. So, um, well, we're sort of back to what you said at the beginning, isn't it? About, you know, customers care a lot less than we think they do. Therefore, difference is a lot more, sorry, distinctiveness and standing out is a lot more important than a minutiae bit of difference Absolutely. to the engineer. I mean, they don't have enough yeah. knowledge of the competitors to know what's different anyway. So mm. it, it's just assuming an interest and a knowledge that just isn't there. And it's far, and if you're not, 
seeing these comms and linking it to your brand, you can dance as much as you like on heads of knees or talk about, but if no one remembers it's you, then mm. you're not even off the starting block, really. So, yeah. again, your kind of work on fluency and distinctive assets, it, it all, so it all kind of, there are recurring themes, aren't they? They're all mm. very interconnected. And I think we're getting better at it again, but um, there's a, yeah, there's still a lot of sort of reason to believe thinking and can we own this kind of questions mm. and things going on, which clearly are just wrong and don't matter. Again, there's a sort of wider point in a way, which is that, that with communication in all its forms, how you say it often matters more than what you say. So I'm, I, right now, the book I'm reading at the moment is Ian Leslie's book, uh, Conflicted, about um, you know how to have disagreements mm -hmm. and so on. The, the stuff I've been reading so far, a lot of it is about that. You know, it's not making the points in an argument; it's how you make the points and how you build the relationship with the person that you're having a debate with. If you want to change their mind, you, you've got to get the emotional temperature and everything right first. And all of that links to the stuff we were saying before about, you know, rationality versus emotion and so on. But, you know, we, we, we have this model of advertising as being a, a communication, a delivery mechanism for a proposition or something mm. like that. And I, I'm not sure that's what most of it's doing. It's about I mean, Paul Feldwick talks a lot about, you know, uh, what's the name? Is it Vatslavik? Mm, Vatslavik yeah. and building up relationships about, and I often talk about, you know, we're not in the business of communicating with the public. We're in the business of training them, you know, to want our products. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's not all about rational persuasion or whatever. Yeah. And you've, you've got a nice framework, haven't you, here about how advertising works, haven't you, which, which I've always admired. Can you explain that, the sort of you know, framework about how advertising works? Um, the trouble is I won't remember exactly what I no, said, no, no, no. but I can, I, can, I can put it in another way. I, um, you know, the, advertising has two roles. Brand advertising is about talking to people long before they buy and gently nudging them towards, you know, preferring your brand. By having a long-running conversation where you make them, broadly speaking, feel where you first of all you, you make it easy for the brand to come to mind, and you make it sort of so that people feel vaguely positive towards it when it does come to mind. We we like that Jeremy Bullmore quote. Can you remember that one about the products that people buy? They quite like them. And, yeah, and they quite like them. They buy them a little bit more often because yeah. they quite like them. Kind yeah. of stuff. It's, I mean, it's all we're not mild we're, and nudgy, isn't yeah, it? It's nudgy, driving it's, and conversion no. and all that kind um, of stuff. You know, the, the the point is, we're we're not inspiring brand love. You know, we, we we're just making people making it slightly more likely that people will think of the brand, and when they do think of the brand, they'll <laughs> they quite like it. And then the other role for advertising is when they're in the market is to go. Here I am, you know, I'm the brand you want and make it really easy for them to buy. Sort of. There's a lovely quote, isn't there, about people are very loyal to the brand that's easy to find, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was quite good, isn't it? Yeah, from, I think brand loyalty is, Mars, a, it? is a term we should probably just mm. abandon altogether. Because well, brand loyalty and brand love, right? I think yeah. they're, they're the two mm. candidates yeah. for the bin, aren't they? Yeah. Brand, brand love is just nonsense for most people most of the time. There are, there are brand fanatics in every category. Largely, they're deranged individuals. You know, <laughs> you know, brand fanatics are basically people who are, they're, they're like the stalkers of the brand yeah. world. You know, most of them should probably be locked up. Um, but ordinary people just kind of quite like brands. Loyalty is a slightly more complicated thing because, for a start, 
the term brand loyalty, if you examine the way people use it, it's used to mean a whole load of different things, which are all not necessarily the same thing, you know, retention, um, frequency, weight of purchase. One could even make an argument, as we did, that looking at price elasticity or price sensitivity or lack of price sensitivity is a kind of loyalty. But really, most of what counts for loyalty is just inertia and habit. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's like, you know, loyalty, there's a difference in the marriage between loyalty and just kind of not being bothered to go and find anyone else sort of yeah. thing. You know? And the main thing that, uh, what passes for loyalty most yeah. of the time in, in marketing is, you know, you just haven't moved on yet. I remember once um, getting a, uh, a phone call during dinner, you know, back in the days when the landline still worked, you know, just at that moment when you don't want to be interrupted and some guy going, hello, I'm from British Telecom and since you hold two of our products, that counts you as brand loyal and therefore you're, you know, just going, I'm not fucking brand loyal. I'm about to have my fucking dinner, you know. <laughs> By the way, I had no choice about this, this connection. Yeah, it's exactly, like, you know, it's it's like, it, it, the presumption, <laughs> the presumption yeah. that that by looking at my buying behaviour, he's deduced that I'm his loyal servant. You know, fuck off. <laughs> well, I've got a theory on this one because I, 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 I had the ominous task when I was um, marketing director on LucasAid. We, we did the first reformulation in a long time, uh, forcing us by the sugar, the sugar tax, right, that came in in 2016. So we had no choice but to reformulate, which is on a brand as iconic as that is complete disaster. And you know, I won't go into all the, you know, all the war stories. Um, but I remember at the time, um, I mean, we had inundated, we were inundated with, you know, customer complaints. And there's this lady in Ireland who like was particularly vociferous in, in, in writing stern letters and, you know, all, all the whole thing. Right. And, uh, you know, eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to have to phone her up and see what's going on here. Anyway, she was drinking like 30 bottles a week. Right. <laughs> I said to her, what else do you drink? And she goes, nothing else at Lucas in water. That's it. Right. And she was apoplectic because we'd reduced the amount of glucose and it was literally causing her not to sleep and like the whole, you know, and when I, then in a proper Byron Sharp fashion, I then got the team to go, can we just look at how much volume actually people like this account for? And can we look at the frequency of purchase and all this kind of thing? So fascinating because what we discovered is that we were very overexposed as marketers to the people like her. Right. And so they, they were in our Twitter feeds, they're in customer complaints, you know, they were, you know, popping up in the one-week sales promotion data, all that kind of thing. So the problem is they were front of mind for us. Then we looked at the data, right? Average frequency of consumption over the course of a year, two bottles. Yeah. That that was the majority of volume. And it even got even, I say worse, it got that even was, more interesting. the mean or the median? Well, there we go. See, that was, <laughs> we, got, we got even more interesting because I then got this weird bit of data where um, apparently 40% of our buyers were new. And I'm like, 40%. It can't be mm. right because like, the population is not big enough for this every year. Annual penetration. Annual penetration. Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah. So I'm yeah. going, this cannot be right. Yeah. So I said, go, go back and run the data over three years, right? Yeah. Came back. Basically, we had some very light buyers. Yeah. So basically, there were like people that just occasionally got ill, occasionally drunk Lucozade, and they may happen to buy one year, not the next year. Oh, I mean, that that's was pretty it. typical. <laughs> yeah, like, I would imagine, because I think my sense is that Lucozade is sort of changed since we were kids you know but but when we were kids it was the thing you had when you were ill and you you know going back into my childhood it was probably something I had five times because you know there were five occasions when I was that ill that you needed Lucozade you know 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. You are twenty percent of the population, Les, that, that, <laughs> that for whom they didn't buy every year. They bought a cake less less frequently. But it was really profound because when we come out with the you know the, the relaunch and the, the new campaign. We originally were planning around an eight week. We thought eight weeks was enough to cover everyone, right? And I'm like, hang on, this needs to be more like eight years. Yeah, like, yeah. forget eight weeks, you know. Can't possibly get to all our light buyers in that time. It's- I still haven't had standard LucasAid since probably the 1970s. Although I have had LucasAid sport. Right. Anyway, I better start talking about LucasAid. But let's let's end on this question. I'd love to know. I mean, you cover a lot of things in the book and uh, lots of myth busting. If there was one topic you didn't cover in the book that you would do today, if you wrote the book today, what would it be? Um, I think purpose, because I think we'd have a lot to say about it now. And I think we've we've actually got a lot of evidence um, which could lead to a more kind of nuanced discussion and debate on it, I think, rather than the kind of binary yes or no stuff that's been going on over the last few years. So I think I, think, um, I would like to do a chapter on that if we did a, if we did I, a new I, book. I can, I can see a good follow-up to the podcast then. We, did, we didn't touch on this earlier on, but the article started out as a myth-busting thing, but very quickly it evolved away from that, didn't it? Because we didn't, we didn't, didn't used to call it myth-buster to ourselves, we called it grr, um, because we realised that the thing that worked best was if we found something that we were cross about. So I think that's actually the, 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 the secret of the book, is it's a very angry book. Every, every single article, there's 66 things that made us cross so and i think that's why it was so fertile because we would we would come across we'd, we'd float ideas and you know back them back and forth between the two of us but the ones that worked were the ones where we both went oh god that's annoying you know and few things are as annoying as the whole purpose myth bollocks <laughs> there we go ladies and gentlemen. let's let's keep them hanging on that <laughs> Les and Peter, sorry, Les and Peter. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, love. Sarah and Les. Petiter. It's me that he has the relationship oh. with, not Peter. <laughs> the other man. The other man. It's my rival. For- yeah, well, thank you so it's been much. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. We'll have to bring Peter in for a cameo. Well, yeah, and of course, Peter taught some bollocks about purpose, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. Well, oh, there we go. There we go. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's tried to do his bit, hasn't he? But uh, thank you both. Thank You're you. Very welcome. It's been fun. Oh, thank you. That's thank very you. enjoyable. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and watching The Uncensored CMO. That was my episode with Les Bennett and Sarah Carter. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you want to get other episodes like this, then please do subscribe. You can do that over on YouTube. You can also do it where you get your podcasts. If you want to follow me, you can do. I'm over at Twitter at Uncensored CMO. I'm also available on LinkedIn where I'm under my normal name, John Evans. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.